Okay, hello everybody. Today is Tuesday. Time for True Crime Talk Radio. But just a couple of quick announcements before we begin. The first is that there is a new series of videos out on the Zodiac Killer channel, but it's covering some new territory, talking about cases of hauntings and paranormal activity. One more time on the Zodiac Killer channel here on YouTube, and you can listen to those for free. The narrator is awesome. And the next thing is just a quick reminder that this show relies on your support, and the best way to support this channel is just by listening to some more content. A good way to do that is by going over to the Launchpad 1 page, where you can download Black Box Online Radio. You can t- download the audio of this show as a pure podcast, take the audio on the go anywhere and anyhow. But another good way to support the show is by visiting the Teespring page. There's some merchandise slash t-shirts available. Almost all sizes and colors are listed. And remember, being weird is not a crime. And sometime this summer, I hope to have a book out called Killer on a White Horse by me, Ned DeHaan. It is a novel, but if you read it, you'll definitely see that certain pieces of inspiration came from real-life true crime stories, and it'll be released electronically, so it's a good time to get those uh, Kindles, tablets, and maybe even your smartphone ready. So lots of things coming out this year. I also have a perhaps larger announcement, and that is next week on the channel will be devoted entirely to the Long Island serial killer. Black Box Online Radio is now coming to you five days a week talking about Zodiac Mondays, True Crime Talk Radio, the AMA on Wednesdays. Thursday, we'll have a regularly scheduled episode on the disappearance of Donna Lass for this week, and Friday's Anything Goes segment. But next week, will be devoted to the Long Island serial killer. Five episodes will come out in a row, a five-part series, if you will. So please look out this week to keep up with the uh, episodes on the disappearance of Donna Lass. I will do one this week, though, and that'll be out Thursday. And Friday will be the regularly scheduled Anything Goes segment talking about the death of August Ames. I've been going through the book-slash-extended podcast, if you will, from Audible, The Last Days of August by John Ronson, and it is a fascinating story, and it really is something that is ahead of its time. It's a little bit like an audiobook, a little bit like a podcast, somewhere in the middle of the last days of August by John Ronson. So many, many things coming out on Black Box Online Radio. It's a good time to hit that like button and subscribe so you can follow along with all of this. And I'll make some more announcements once I get closer to the release date for the book Killer on a White Horse by me, Ned DeHaan. Now, to pick up with something in the true crime world, I'd like to continue with from yesterday's Zodiac Monday segment when I was talking about the Fairfield letters. And the first thing is, I only read off one of the Fairfield letters that had been written by the Zodiac Killer. And in between um, the crimes that took place in the summer and fall of 1969, the Zodiac committed the Lake Berryessa stabbing on September 27th. Then the Zodiac murdered Paul Stein on October 11th of 1969. But After the murder of Paul Stein, a piece of Paul Stein's bloody shirt was mailed in, and then, again, another piece of Paul Stein's bloody shirt was mailed in with the Melvin Belli letter, 
which going off of memory was December 20th, I, although please don't quote me on that one. However, in between, there are two letters that are mailed from Fairfield, California, on December 7th and December 16th. And I was uh, discussing some comments that have been made by Richard Grinnell of ZodiacCiphers.com on his podcast, Zodiac Speaking, which he co-hosts with Mike Morford. And I would like to just continue onward with that, and um, I don't think that this will be... Um, too far gone if you haven't heard yesterday's um, episode. I think that this will all be very much in line. It is clear from the December 7th and December 16th communications the author is threatening government life, most likely the police. The Zodiac threatened government life in one of the Fairfield letters. But the author supplied a 38-character code following the December 16th, 1969 letter. The code contains... 38 symbols, and threatening another 38 kills, including cops. And curiously, his June 26, 1970 button letter claims of shooting a man with a 38 caliber, most likely a coincidence, but you never know. Here's a forum thread on Zodiac Killer's site, and you can check that out over on Morford's site, by some of the observations, particularly by A.K. Wilkes. The December 7, 1969, 38-character Fairfield letter has been cleaned up, and it has been more readable. And right now, I'll read the text of the um, Fairfield letter, which contains the Z38 cipher. I just need help. I will kill again, so expect at any time now. The will be a cop. Then I will turn myself in. Okay? And the reason I wanted to talk about this one was because when I was listening to Zodiac speaking, Richard Rennell said that he believed that this was actually a genuine, authentic Zodiac communication. And when I'm just rambling here on Blackwatch Online Radio, I don't use a script or anything, and sometimes half of a sentence in my mind gets left off once it actually comes into the recording. And what I meant to say was, when I looked at the um, Fairfield letter that we were discussing yesterday, and I'll just go ahead and read the other one, this is the Zodiac speaking. I just want to tell you that this state is in trouble. I will go for the government life, so don't forget me. I will kill more people the, than cops. You can count, so look for more blood. You better print. You will not catch me. I will kill in San Francisco three times, SJ1, Vallejo 6, Napa 8, Fairfield 3, and Sacramento 9, Oakland 8. Ha ha ha. Now, the first thing I said was, when I read this letter, that one that I just read off there, that Fairfield letter, I thought that that was a blatant forgery and a bad one, but I do concede that that part at the bottom, you will not catch me, I will kill in San Francisco three times, and then SJ1, which I expect means San Jose, but um, Vallejo 6, that sounded like something that I thought the Zodiac Killer would genuinely do. Um, there's a cipher image, though, that was included in that Fairfield letter that I was just reading off that is um, six characters long, it appears, although it might be um, even just referred to as the Z5 in some sources. That seems like absolutely different penmanship, different design, definitely not anything like the real Zodiac Killer, but that part in the end when he lists the victims, that does seem like somewhat of a genuine Zodiac correspondence. But then here, in the Z38, this is the Zodiac speaking, I just need help, I will kill again, so expect it any time. Now, the will be a cop, then I will turn myself in, okay? 
The Z38 heavily, heavily resembles the Z340, and the final line of the Z340 says, Slaves Paradise Death. Now, there's also an image in the Z340, well, an image, it's an, it's an arrangement of the characters that is very similar to the word Zodiac, and that will be important. But the Z38 begins with the word her, or in the English language, her, and then there's like a um, carrot slug symbol, and so on, and definitely seems like very similar penmanship to whoever wrote the other Fairfield letter. But um, with this here, it is so oddly similar that um, it really does make you curious. I mean, the Z340 was published previously, prior to December 7th and December 16th of 1969, so someone could have learned about it from the papers. But the observation that was made by Richard Grinnell is that the final part of the Z38 that looks like um, an A, looks like an I, a K, what Richard calls left eye, an eye with like a left mark on the side, and a plus sign, Slaves, Paradise, Death. Using the Zodiac's code, that correctly spells out the word death. So that is quite an odd thing for a copycat to do, especially considering the, um, the fact that there's a line in the 340 that spells out the word zodiac almost clearly. Granted, it's using like a triangle instead of a D, but um, this is what I meant when I said before in a previous episode that I had never thought that these things were real. I just dismissed them completely. It's like, no, of course it's not real. It's just some hoaxer. This is just a copycat. This isn't the real killer. But um, Richard did point out this, and that he makes a convincing um, argument that this could be a genuine Zodiac communication that just got kind of overlooked because someone is spelling out words correctly from the Zodiac's code. It could be, could be that they just pulled up the last letters, that last arrangement there, or it could be that um, they actually understood the code because it was the real killer. I just wanted to share that with you guys because um, that was something that I was definitely leaning more towards, saying that that's a genuine communication about the Zodiac Killer. Now, to move on to a different subject, I was out in the library recently, and it was the first time that I had been to the library since the pandemic had started. And I was just, you know, there for a while, and as I was walking out, I had that moment when a book just caught my eye, like one that was on the last shelf as I was walking out, and sometimes that's the best way when you can discover new things. And it was called When in French by Lauren Collins. Yes, When in French. And it's the memoir of a of an American woman who marries a Frenchman, and first they move to the United Kingdom, and then they move to Geneva, Switzerland, and that's where the story actually starts, although it is nonfiction. As I said, a memoir. And there are two uh, reasons why I'm bringing this one up here. The second one, I promise you, is true crime related. But uh, Lauren Collins writes here in her book on page 14 that being married to a Frenchman who didn't speak English fluently is similar to Andy Kaufman's impression of the foreign man, or actually says, I was living with Andy Kaufman's foreign man. And I... I absolutely love Andy Kaufman, so I have to just share that with you real fast. If you haven't heard that before, well, this is what it's like. I, I would like to do for you some 
imitations. So first, I would like to imitate Archie Bunker. You stupid. Everybody so stupid. You, you meathead, get out of my chair. You think that going to the kitchen make me the food. Everybody so stupid. I don't like nobody so stupid. Thank you very much. And that was Andy Kaufman, rest in peace. I also have an episode on this channel, not about him, but about the death of Sam Kinison, because that got more connected to the true crime world. Sam Kinison died after um, receiving injuries from a car accident, and the um, the other driver in that was given a very, very light sentence, even though he um, caused this accident that led to somebody's death. Sometimes it's good, though, to just go back and connect with some older comedians. But I said there was a second thing in this book here, When in French by Lauren Collins, that is true crime related. And I'll just read a paragraph from her book. One day I received an email from the International Hotel Geneve. Yes, I guess it'd be Geneve, excuse me. Geneva. Entitled, What You Didn't Know About Geneva. I didn't know about the Intercontinental House of Geneva, to begin with, and it continued later on that the likes of the Saudi royal family and the ruling family of the United Arab Emirates have the most have purchased the most expensive bottle of wine sold at auction in Geneva in 1947, a Chateau Cheval Blanc at $303,000.37. That most expensive diamond in the world was also sold in Geneva, a 59.6 carat oval cut pink diamond worth $83 million, or that Geneva had witnessed numerous world records, such as the world's longest candy cane, measuring 51 feet. I developed a theory that I thought of as the Edouard Stern Principle, named after the French investment banker who was found dead in a penthouse apartment in Geneva, shot four times, wearing a flesh-colored latex catsuit. Trust. And that did the word trust is written there for some reason. Read any truly tawdry news story, and Geneva will somehow play into it by the fifth paragraph. Balzac wrote that behind every great fortune lies a crime. In Switzerland, behind every crime seemed to lie a great fortune. I mean, of course, it's always interesting to hear about uh, these world records, the world's longest candy cane, Absolutely, I'm genuinely curious about that stuff. But um, if you ever do want to read this book, When in French by Lauren Collins, I'm reminded of my younger self when I can see that someone is trying to be funny, and I can recognize humor in a lot of the things she talks about because I think the author is coming at it from a good place, and there's still a sense of innocence in the humor. But at the same time, I'm almost like, I wish you weren't making fun of certain situations. And I want to be very clear. I'm going to be talking about the death of Edward Stern, and no matter what, I am not making fun of him. Even if, uh, well, let's just get into this. I would like to jump over to an article from the Wall Street Journal called How a Banker's Life Full of Intrigue Ended in Murder. On March 1st, colleagues of French financier Edward Stern found their boss lying in a 
lying dead in a pool of blood in the bedroom of his Geneva apartment, clad head to toe in a skin-colored latex bodysuit. There were two bullets in his head and one in his chest. The murder of one of Europe's richest men sent a shudder throughout the world of global finance. Mr. Stern was a dashing heir of a 19th century banking dynasty. He was also a shrewd businessman whose ruthlessness over the years had earned him many enemies. Swiss police quickly cleared up part of the mystery. Mr. Stern's lover, a 36-year-old woman named Cecile Brossard, confessed to murdering him, but investigators say they don't have a clear picture of her motive. The pair had a stormy relationship who had been feuding over $1 million Mr. Stern had wired to Miss Brossard's bank account and subsequently froze it. People close to Stern contend that the money was a down payment for a set of Chagall paintings Miss Brossard was supposed to have delivered. Soon after the murder and before she was arrested, a lawyer from Miss Brossard sent the Stern family a letter asking for the $1 million payment to be released. Now talk about some tie-in drama there, million-dollar payment for paintings. A different lawyer from Ms. Brossard says that his client committed a crime of passion. Under Swiss law, that carries a shorter prison sentence than premeditated murder. Yikes, though, I mean, very, very nasty, though. I mean, it definitely sounds like there is somewhat of a premeditated element if she had the um, anticipation and awareness of this million-dollar deal. It doesn't sound like something that could have happened in the heat of the moment with all of this prior knowledge. Miss Brossard portrays herself as a victim of Mr. Stern's abusive behavior, someone who lost control in a moment of fury and grabbed the gun and that her lover kept in a drawer. For example, she says through her attorney, Mr. Stern would often promise to marry her and then he would retract it. Alongside the turmoil in his private life, which Mr. Stern shielded from even close family members, the 50-year-old banker had become obsessed by a legal battle. Before his death, he had squared off against some of France's leading businessmen over his failed investment in a chemicals company called Rodia S.A. He was haunted by the belief that his life was in danger, and he took to carrying a gun, according to his lawyers and associates. He told associates that he thought he was being followed. One of his lawyers says that in the final months of his life, Mr. Stern called as many as six times a day to talk to him about the Rodia company. During his eventful career, Mr. Stern amassed a $1 billion fortune through a series of brilliant business deals. Along the way, he ousted his father from the family firm, feuded with his powerful father-in-law who headed the investment bank Lazar, and divorced his wife. Torn between his desire to be embraced by France's elite and his desire for its business and social etiquette, he eventually moved to Switzerland. Several friends say Mr. Stern hated to lose all of the money, but um, he once paid a tax advisor in French francs after being billed for work in Swiss francs and pocketed the difference. People who were close to Stern say that he could be tremendously charming. Two years later, Mr. Stern met Cecile Brossard, an artist 14 years his junior at a dinner party hosted by mutual friends. She enjoyed sculpting, painting, and writing poetry. They became lovers, according to Pascal Marais, Miss Brossard's lawyer. Mr. Stern flew her to his uh, Gulfstream exotic vacation destinations, including his hunting trips in Africa. And I would like to continue with a post from Jewage.com. Edward Stern was found shot to death on March 1st, 2005 in Geneva. His body was found in his bedroom, clothed in a flesh-colored head-to-toe latex catsuit with a dildo inserted in him and shot four times. Police initially thought that the latex suit 
must have been a ruse by the murderers to confuse the police, but it later became clear that Sturd had been involved in a sadomasochistic bondage session. Swift's authorities arrested his longtime lover, Cecile Brossard, over the killing. Society columnist Taki Theodora Coppolis has reported that in The Spectator, Stern, in addition to having many girlfriends, was bisexual and had a boyfriend, and that he was a rough sex connoisseur. Brossard, age 40, was convicted on June 18, 2009, and sentenced to eight years and six months in prison. In addition, the Swiss court ordered Brossard to pay Stern's children one Swiss franc for moral damage. Now, I just have to throw in an interjection here. All right, I think you can see the build-up. The guy's businessman becoming very successful, and it appears that his girlfriend has this financial dispute with her lover, and she wants to get back at him in some way, and maybe they did these bondage sessions regularly, and even if they didn't, it was an opportunity to shoot him in a vulnerable place. Now, all of these details going into the media, I don't find any of that to be embarrassing. The thing that is, that is embarrassing is ordered to pay one Swiss franc for damage and destruction to the reputation. I mean, that is just, that's the stuff that is embarrassing on part of any judicial system. I mean, I know it's not in my country, the USA, it's coming from Switzerland, but that is um, absolutely pathetic. The reason why I said that no matter what I say, I'm not making fun of him is I'd love to go out like this. Not the dildo so much. No, dildo in the ass, don't need that. Not the gunshots, no. I don't need to be shot three or four times. One article said three times, another said four. The catsuit? Bondage latex catsuit? Yeah, absolutely. Sign me up. And, um... To continue on here, the uh, Wall Street Journal has reported that the Stearns family hopes people will stop talking about the case. Oh, well, sorry, I didn't didn't preview that one. My bad. Cecile Brossard was freed on parole in November of 2010 after spending five years in detention, including four years awaiting trial. You know, it really goes to show you that some people, if not only they have money, but they're also connected to these elite circles, they get let out. Whereas someone can be facing felony charges if they're selling stuff on the street and then doing it without a license. That was another one that was in the news recently. Oh, no, but if you're in an elite circle, yeah, you murdered somebody. One year in detention, they called it. They didn't even say jail or prison. They said in detention. In the other four years, she was awaiting trial. Silver spoon in the mouth. You ever heard that expression? Or how about this one? being absorbed into the oligarchy. Because it says very clearly in an article from The Guardian that Cecile Brossard started out as a shopkeeper. And why don't I just go over and look at that one? This is from The Guardian, written by Lizzie Davies in Paris. And Cecile Brossard, the shop assistant turned artist who shot dead one of France's richest men while he was tied to a chair during a sadomasochistic sex session, was found guilty of unpremeditated murder by a court in Geneva. I'm not sure I believe that. Just giving my first take on the subject, it really, knowing about that million-dollar deal that they had, that um, or she, he's supposed to wire the money and so on, and he didn't do that. Now, I don't know everything. I wasn't there. But don't you get the feeling like she had c concocted this plan to commit the crime at an earlier date? 
The jury rejected the defense claims that the killing, which she admitted was a crime of passion, was committed by a psychologically vulnerable woman driven to distraction by the manipulative tendencies of her millionaire lover. It actually sounds like he was a billionaire at the height of his wealth, but um, I, have, I think that this was a crime committed for greed. And you can see very clearly how the media latches on to these stories because of the sensational aspects, because of the outrageous aspects. That's why I'm even talking about it now, because it definitely caught my attention when I was reading this book, When in French, and you come across that line about how, yeah, a man was shot four times while he was wearing a latex-colored cat's suit and um, during a sadomasochistic sex session. I'm still curious what that is like. Dildo in the ass, I don't think so, but cat suit? There must be a reason why people do that. I mean, there must be something good about that part of it. But anyway, I mean, that's why people talk about these things, and let alone do you have this rich billionaire guy, and that's what he does in his, his spare time. Well, to each his own, minus the illegal activities. Now, the case that we had just been discussing reminded me of one that I talked about on Black Box Online Radio once, and they're very different in terms of how things happen, but I was reminded of the story of Der Metzgermeister, and maybe you can tell that I don't speak German, <laughs> not well anyway, and it was listed as the story of the most bizarre way to die, and a man replied to an online ad, and he met up with another guy, and they cut his penis off together, and they ate it together, and then that guy died from blood loss and such, and Der Metzgermeister, the penis-eating cannibal story from Germany, people do weird things. And I was just glancing at that book that I was talking about, uh, Killer on a White Horse, uh, the novel that's coming out um, later on this year. There's a line even in that when one fictional character says, you learned about the darker side of humanity. Oh, it's there. People do some absolutely ridiculous things, and a lot of it stays in the shadows. But if we're going to learn about humanity, we have to learn everything. And if we're going to share stories of humanity, I would like to turn to one that is perhaps even darker because there is not this outrageous element surrounding it. Last week for the Anything Goes segment on Friday, I was talking about the book Bond of Secrecy, My Life with CIA Spy and Watergate Conspirator E. Howard Hunt. And there was a particular section in the book that stood out to me more so than any, any other part of it. And this um, book is written by St. John Hunt, the son of E. Howard Hunt. But um, this is from, like, the afterword. This section here is called... E. Howard Hunt and the JFK Plotters, and it was written by Eric Hamburg. But um, I will read off a couple paragraphs from the book, and we'll see why this is going to take a dark and twisted turn. In my conversations with Howard Hunt, it was clear that he was fascinated by both Cord and Mary Meyer, in particularly her mysterious death. Just after the release of the Warren Commission report, this was also evident in her memoir, American Spy. Among the other things, Howard Hunt wrote, Another name that pops up in the JFK conspiracy theories is Cord Meyer. He was a high-level CIA operative whose wife, journalist Mary Pinchot, was having an affair with John F. Kennedy. By the time of the CIA, 
By the time of the assassination, Cord had been promoted to chief of the CIA's International Organizations Division. The theorist suggests that Cord would have had a motive to kill Kennedy because his wife was having an affair with the president. But then, on October 12, 1964, Mary was tragically gunned down while walking on a towpath in Georgetown. By that time, she and Cord had divorced, and the media did not realize that her former husband was a high-ranking CIA official. Neither did they find out about her relationship with the president. And to help us out, I'm going to jump over to a different article from Town & Country Magazine, townandcountrymag.com. I used this one last year, I think only one time when I was reading up on the Sharon Tate murders, and they had a lot of uh, detailed info in that one. That will, You can find that in the episodes, The Murder of Sharon Tate and Remembering Sharon Tate here on this channel. Those are some of the older podcast recordings, but I would invite you to listen all the same. This one is called Inside the Unsolved Murder of JFK's Mistress, Mary Pinchot Meyer. On a brisk autumn day in October 1964, Washington, D.C. socialite and painter Mary Pinchot Meyer was out for an afternoon stroll on the Chesapeake and Ohio Canal on the towpath in Georgetown, a route she often took when she was shot and killed in broad daylight. A 25-year-old African-American man named Ray Crump was arrested, having been found near the scene. The lack of evidence, though, would eventually lead to his acquittal. To this day, the murder remains unsolved, but the case is still the subject of fascination to many. Inspiring memoirs, novels, a TV series, and a new podcast called Murder on the Towpath by Emmy-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien that, that premiered on Luminary, the subscription podcast network. I'm not the biggest fan of Soledad O'Brien, mostly because of how mainstream she became, but I'm not going to lie to you, I would love to learn more about that one, follow that one. Do you ever have those moments when you're just reading a book or reading an article the way I just was, and you hear about something that doesn't seem right? Someone is having an affair with John F. Kennedy. She's accused of being the mistress of John F. Kennedy, and she ends up dead for any reason, let alone that her husband is a high-ranking CIA official, and she gets gunned down. And I think that's exactly what St. John Hunt and Eric Hamburg were trying to do with this book, Bond of Secrecy. Yeah, they want to draw attention to these activities, but um, and, and, and show how this person would have had a motive to commit murder. And I'm fully aware that I've connected a few of the dots on my own, and they perhaps wanted me to do just that. But did that actually happen? Was someone else behind the death of Mary Pinchot Meyer? Was it the CIA or was it someone else in a different part of the government? Who was Mary Pinchot Meyer? Why the endless fascination? For one, Meyer was a very well-connected socialite with a social pedigree. Her father was a wealthy lawyer, her mother a journalist, and an uncle had served as a two-time governor of Pennsylvania. She was educated at Manhattan's prestigious Brearley School and then went on to Vassar and married a high-ranking CIA official named Cord Meyer, whom she divorced in 1958. She counted Jackie Kennedy as a friend. The Kennedys had moved in next door to the Meyers in 1954. The two women who took walks together, often on the same path where Meyer 
was later murdered. Ben Bradley, who would go on to lead the Washington Post and become a folk hero after Watergate, was her brother-in-law. He married her sister, Antoinette. She was also one of John F. Kennedy's mistresses. The two had known each other since high school when they met at a school dance, and they struck up a secret romantic relationship after her divorce. You know, that's the biggest thing. Um, John F. Kennedy having an affair. Impossible. Hashtag sarcasm. She would visit JFK at the White House when Jackie went out of town in October of 1963, a month before JFK was assassinated. The president wrote a letter to Meyer imploring her visit, her to visit him in Boston or on Cape Cod. Why don't you just say yes, it read. The letter, which was never sent, remained with JFK's personal secretary, Evelyn Lincoln, and it went up for auction in 2016 and sold for nearly $89,000. Did you hear that name, Lincoln, the uh, secretary that they always talk about? Most people think it's a cabinet secretary, but personal secretary, Evelyn Lincoln. Oh, that thing about Ke Lincoln working with um, a secretary named Kennedy, and Kennedy working with a secretary named Lincoln. What happened to her? Meyer lived in Georgetown with her two sons, and where she had moved after her divorce and became an artist. She spent most of her time painting in her studio. On October 12, 1964, at around noon, she left for her daily walk on the towpath along the CNO Canal. There she was shot twice. In just 45 minutes, the police had apprehended a suspect named Crump, who was found nearby. His clothes were soaked. He said he had been fishing and dropped his pole and fell into the canal to try and retrieve it. Legendary civil rights attorney Dovey Johnson Roundtree became Crump's defense lawyer and he was acquitted of all charges in 1965. The murder was never solved. Someone has a failed relationship with John F. Kennedy. Someone has an ex-husband in the CIA. Are your suspicions just going into overdrive? Meyer's illustrious social connections, plus the shock that something like this had happened in Georgetown, made this crime particularly salacious, and her affair with Kennedy and her connections to the CIA openly criticized. They inevitably fed the conspiracy theory machine. Was the CIA behind both Meyer and JFK's death with their alleged killers as scapegoats? Did the CIA order the hit because she knew too much? I mean, I'm not going to lie to you. That was kind of my first instinct. And it doesn't have to be the CIA, as I said, a different part of the government if she's that close to the president. But the CIA is often the organization that uh, takes the heat for things like that. Then the fact that her death occurred a few weeks after the release of the Warren Commission, which which concluded that JFK's assassination was the work of a lone gunman. This further fanned the flames, since she allegedly challenged its conclusions. I think it's really odd that this article would throw that in there, as I said, Town & Country magazine, but I just think it's very odd that they would um, insert it that way. That is also trying to get you um, suspicious. And yeah, it's a suspicious situation. They're like kind of just fanning the flames, as they said, pouring fuel on the fires of curiosity. While there was a fact that the CIA was wiretapping her phone and its counterintelligence chief was found trying to break into her studio to find her diary after the murder, likely to prevent details of her affair with JFK becoming public. But Meyer isn't the only fascinating woman at the center of this story. In Murder on the Towpath, Soledad O'Brien delves deeper into the unsolved mystery of Meyer's death by shifting focus away from all the conspiracy theories into the woman at the heart of the story. 
And it's good to do that, absolutely, because here's one thing, though, that I think is rarely talked about. Conspiracy theories are just that. They're called theories. They're not called established facts. Sometimes a conspiracy theory is true, but for us as the listener, for us as the person who's trying to figure things out, most of the time it stays in that conspiracy theory world, and it is so much more valuable to remember the person and recognize that they did not deserve to die that way. So, I mean, big rest in peace, Mary Pinchot Meyer, and a big rest in peace to Edward Stern, even though he was doing some things that most of us probably will not do in our life. I mean, I, I won't even have a billion dollars, I'll guarantee you that. Even though he was um, doing certain activities in the moments prior to his death that most of us probably will not try, he didn't deserve to get murdered. Um, rest in peace to all the victims. Myers, one of course, the uh, uh, one of the women of the focus of murder on the towpath. But the other is Dovey Johnson Roundtree, the trailblazing civil rights attorney who successfully defended Myers' accused killer and got him acquitted. Here is something from the true crime world. As somebody who just talks about this stuff on Tuesday afternoons and so on, as someone who just follows the true crime world. It can be more valuable sometimes to leave a case unsolved and just have that air of mystery and doubt and speculation running wild and people are going to be accusing person A of the murder or person B. And when I say beneficial, I mean beneficial to a group like the CIA if they don't have a conviction in that. And you just heard there, the, the evidence was insufficient to get that guy Crump convicted, if they just leave the case unsolved, then people are going to come up with all of these theories and accusations about it was the CIA or somebody close to JFK, some actor inside the government is trying to silence Mary Pinchot Meyer, or that she has info that she shouldn't, or they just want her gone because they don't want to create any type of scandal. They're doing something very destructive for their own selfishness. But if they just leave it unsolved, people are going to blame the CIA. They're going to blame the government. And the general public will not listen. Oh no. John Stockwell, a former CIA operative, perhaps said it best when he laid out the case that the general public will only care about something if the mainstream media regularly talks about it. Have you heard anything recently about Ghislaine Maxwell? How's she doing? So... If they don't talk about a story regularly, then people will forget about it. And people can talk all they want in alternative media. They can make all the types of accusations they want. If I were to do a podcast five days a week talking about how Mary Pinchot Meyer was killed by the CIA, you know, they're just going to sit back and firstly, they're going to laugh at the general public. They won't even know I exist here on Black Box Online Radio because the channel isn't that big. And even if everything I said were hypothetically true, that she was murdered by the CIA, murdered by someone in the government, if, 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 right? I mean, but I'm talking in a hypothetical example. Then what would be the end result? All right, I would share it, you know, with 500 people maximum or something, maybe a thousand. That isn't going to change the course of human nature. It isn't going to alter public opinion, and it won't control how the general public thinks. And the famous line that I got from the Venetian conspiracy, if you control how people think, you control everything. So 
People will only care about something if the mainstream media regularly presents it. And, I mean, thank you to all of you guys for tuning into Black Box Online Radio, hearing something alternative. All of you are awesome, and I'm looking forward to that um, podcast, Murder on the Towpath, mainstream or not. I just want to hear it. I try to listen to loads of different things from sources. I did have a ban on this channel when I said that I'm not using CNN for any true crime articles ever again. All right, maybe once or twice I have broken that. Not today, though. However, Soledad O'Brien is a former CNN host, and that was when I began to dislike her a little bit more because the interviews that she would do were just, well, just that, like, it's all theater. Like, you could definitely, and it wasn't even a good presentation when you can see that she's kind of making crackpot points for the sake of argument just to um, play a certain role. But we don't need to talk about her anymore. I will only mention her again if I get through the podcast Murder on the Towpath, talking about the death of Mary Pinchot Meyer. And that will bring us to the end of True Crime Talk Radio for today. Thank you for listening to the part on the Zodiac Killer, the part on Edward Stern, and the part on Mary Meyer that just concluded now. And if you like this episode, you can hit the like button, subscribe, and share with your friends and family, anyone who's into the world of true crime. One more time, the show is available for free downloads at Launchpad 1. Anybody can write the show at blackboxonlineradio at AOL.com. My personal Facebook is also in the description box here, and you can always get me on Instagram at blackboxnid. 88. Many ways to keep in touch. The absolute best one is to just put your ideas in the comments section down below and express any opinion that you want or make any recommendations for something that you would like covered on one of these episodes, even in something like True Crime Talk Radio when they have very small segments that are just put together, when we have very small segments that are just put together. So please look out next week for the five-part series on the Long Island serial killer, which will start next Monday. And if you're listening to this at a future date, there is a five-part series on the Long Island serial killer. You're always welcome to check out any of the content on this channel, even if you go back and listen to some of the older episodes on the murder of Sharon Tate. Remembering Sharon Tate, I did two of them last year around this time, and I'm sure that I'll do something, because we are approaching the anniversary of the Tate-LaBianca murders, and a lot of true crime activity happened in the month of August. The disappearance of Brandon Lawson happened around the same time, and I'm hoping to do anniversary episodes for all of those um, cases. So, I will see you guys on Instagram for the bonus podcast. Until next time.